My name is Jeff, and it's my pleasure and privilege to look with you again at Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 31 to 62. I think one of the most powerful passages in the entire Bible. Can I encourage you to have your Bible open, and uh, we're going to think about what it means and how it applies to us. Let's ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, will you please help us now to grasp the enormity and riches of the death of Christ for us, that we might respond with... uh, Appropriate love and obedience to him, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember one time talking to my cousin. Um, she's, uh, she's Jewish. She's actually the principal of a, a Jewish primary school over in the eastern suburbs. Um, but uh, one of the teachers, actually was a teacher from Covenant Christian School, one of my son Joel's teachers, came and joined her. So this is Christian teacher in a, in a Jewish school. And the Christian teacher, her a daughter, she had a daughter, and the daughter was getting baptised, and she invited my cousin to come to church. So my Jewish cousin went to church. Uh, She said it was quite nice. The people were friendly to her. But she said one thing struck her as really weird. She said they kept singing songs about Jesus dying on the cross as if it was some lovely thing. She said it's like Jesus died in sweat and blood and disgrace and agony. I'm walking on sunshine. She said it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing that Jesus was nailed to a cross. How could you sing about it as if if it's a nice thing? You have to admit she's got a point, doesn't she? We worship a man who was crucified. We, we, We put crosses on our buildings and on our necklaces. The cross is a symbol of torture. It's a symbol of disgrace. That is that is quite weird. So why do we do it? What is it about the death of Jesus that we Christians, we don't don't mourn over? What is it about the death of Jesus that we Christians delight in? Well, as we pick up chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel, you might remember from last week, we're at the Last Supper. Jesus has just given bread and wine to the disciples. Remember, he said, do this to remember me. Not to remember Passover anymore, to remember me. Uh, Jesus is talking about how he's going to die. Meanwhile, the disciples are arguing. You remember what they're arguing about? They're arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus says it's not about greatness on earth. He says again, and he said it so many times, he says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, it's a heavenly kingdom. And now at this point in the supper, Jesus turns to Peter. And he tells him that the devil is going to give him a good shaking. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Peter. And so although you fall, you're going to return. And when you do, Jesus says, make sure you help the other disciples. Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Have a look with me. Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Simon, Simon, remember Peter's other name is Simon. Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter's full of bravado. He reckons he'll follow Jesus no matter what, but Jesus knows better. He knows that Peter will deny him three times. Verse 33. But Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, You will deny three times that you know me. 
Jesus then talks to the disciples and he says to them that the scriptures are about to be fulfilled in him. And in particular, he says that Isaiah 53 will be fulfilled in him. Uh, He says he's going to be numbered with the transgressors. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 53, uh, which is talking about a suffering servant who will die for the sins of God's people. Jesus says, the scripture will be fulfilled. I'm about to die for you. So you'll be without me. And so Jesus says, you need to prepare yourselves. He says, I've provided for you so far. When I sent you out on mission, you had everything you need, but now you're on your own. You need to prepare yourselves. Jesus uses the metaphor of of them getting their own purse and their own bag and their own sword instead of being able to rely on him for them. Unfortunately, they've still got no idea what Jesus is on about. They take Jesus literally. They still think he's going to start a revolution against Rome, even though he's just told them he's about to die. They've still got no idea that his, that his kingdom is, an earthly, is a heavenly one and not an earthly one. And so Jesus, he brings the conversation to an end. Verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Remember, that's on the mission trips that we've seen a few times back in, back in Luke's gospel. Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it. Also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and here's the quote from Isaiah 53, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. He's about to die. The scriptures will be fulfilled in him. Unfortunately, the disciples still think he's going to take on Rome. And so verse 38, the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. And here I think it means enough talking, not that's enough swords to defeat the Roman Empire. (laughs) Well, Jesus now heads out to the Mount of Olives. He finds a place to pray. Um, it's the Garden of Gethsemane, we know from the other Gospels. And he tells the disciples to pray. Verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, the garden, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then Jesus prays to God himself, and you can tell he is seriously stressed. He's overwhelmed with anxiety and with sorrow. The sweat is pouring off him. It's like he's bleeding sweat. There's so much sweat. The the thought of what is before Jesus just fills him with horror and anguish. But he's committed to doing the will of God. Verse 41. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus returns to the disciples, but he finds them sleeping. Not praying. Verse 45. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked. He asked them, get up and pray 
so that you will not fall into temptation. In the next scene, Jesus is arrested. And the way the story is told, it's told as uh, three exchanges. First there's an exchange between Jesus and Judas, then an exchange between Jesus and the disciples, then an exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. Three exchanges. Uh, and each one, Jesus just shows his complete control and the utter failure of the people around him. So first, uh, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus points out what an extraordinarily hypocritical and treacherous thing that is to do. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? First exchange, Jesus and Judas. Second exchange, Jesus and the disciples. The disciples have still got no idea what's going on. They don't know what to do. One of them even tries to start the revolution to resist Jesus' arrest, take on the Roman Empire. He cuts off a man's ear. Not terribly accurate with his sword, but Jesus rebukes him as well and he heals the man. Verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then finally, one third exchange in this arrest is an exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. They come to arrest Jesus. Jesus points out, I've been with you in broad daylight in the temple. Why are you here at night in secret? Answer, Because they're acting from false motives and wickedness. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Final scene now, we're at the house of the high priest. Uh, we put the focus back onto Peter, and exactly as Jesus predicted, what does he do? He denies Jesus three times, denies three times that he knows Jesus. Still in verse 54, Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And then Jesus turns and looks Peter right in the eye. Extraordinarily powerful moment. I can imagine Peter telling the story to Luke, for Luke to write it down. Man, Luke, right then, he looked me right in the eye. Can you imagine? 
straight in the eyes as if to say, this is what I told you, Peter. But don't forget what else I told you. Turn back and strengthen the others. Such a powerful scene. And Peter's reduced to tears. Verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Okay, can you see what's here in Luke chapter 22? It's an extraordinarily powerful passage, isn't it? We start off at the Last Supper. Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him. And then he says the scriptures, Isaiah 53, must be fulfilled in him. We move to the, to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus praying to God in stress and in anguish. If there's any other way, Jesus says, please do it. You know, if you could get yourself to heaven, there would have been another way. Yeah, okay, Jesus, fine. Off you trot. But there is no other way for sinners like us to be saved. And Jesus is committed to following God's will. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is arrested. Three scenes. Judas betrays him. The disciples fail him. The authorities wickedly and secretly arrest him in the middle of the night. And then final scene, exactly as Jesus predicted, Peter denies him three times. Powerful stuff, isn't it? All right, well, let's think about what this passage means for us. I reckon this passage has got uh, some vital lessons for us, vital lessons about the death of Jesus. Now, again, I want to think about four things. I know that's a lot to remember. I should really only have one point. I know if Carmelina sends me to the shops with four things to pick up, I've got no chance of getting it without a, a list. So I know it's a lot to remember, four things. So we're going to use an acronym and some actions to help us. I don't do this in the shops. Um, but... Uh, um, <laughs> An acronym and some actions to help us. Four vital lessons about the death of Jesus from this passage. Okay, so first, Jesus' death is substitutionary. Second, Jesus' death was agonizing. See if you can work out the acronym. Substitutionary. Second, Jesus' death was agonizing. Third, Jesus' death was voluntary. Voluntary. And finally, Jesus' death was unique. Have you got the acronym? Substitutionary, agonizing, voluntary, unique. Jesus' death can save you. Save you. Okay? So here's our acronym to remember, SAVE YOU, S-A-V-U, Jesus' death can save you. Let's think about each point in turn. Uh, first, Jesus' death was substitutionary. He was substituting for us, swapping places with us. Jesus makes it clear in verse 37. He quotes from Isaiah 53 and he says, verse 37, I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Jesus sees his death as fulfilling Isaiah 53. I want to show you Isaiah 53, just give you a quick look at it, giving you some relevant sections. Just one thing I want you to see as we look at Isaiah 53. Notice how the person in Isaiah 53 is dying in our place. Notice the substitution, all right? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Do you notice that's the bit that Jesus quoted? He was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. 
You see the point that Jesus is making? This is what is fulfilled in his death. He dies for your transgressions, your iniquities, your going astray from God. He dies for you, for me. He swaps places with us. Our sin goes on to him and he dies on the cross for us. Let me, let me try to picture it. I had a book before. Sorry, musicians, if I just destroyed your guitar or something. Imagine my hand is you and me, okay? The ceiling is God. This is our sin. It's blocking the way between us and God. There's no way we can be in heaven with God. Our sin is blocking the way. But when Jesus comes, how does he come? He comes as our substitute. He dies in our place. He takes our sin on himself on that cross, and so there's now no barrier. We can be in heaven with God. Okay, that's the S. Sorry, musicians, I'll put it here. That's the S in save you. Jesus' death is substitutionary. Uh, for the kinesthetic learners, let's give you an action. Okay. All right, Jesus' death is substitutionary. Here's how to remember it. Jesus' death can save you. It was substitutionary. You want to say it with me? Let's say it together. Jesus' death can save you. It was substitutionary. Okay, brings us to the A. Okay, Jesus' death was agonising. How do we know that it was agonising? Well, you see it so clearly in that scene at the Mount of Olives, don't you? There in the garden, Jesus' sweat poured down like blood as he begged God to find some other way. Now, I'm a person who sweats plenty, get me on my exercise bike or something like that, and there's a pool of sweat around me after the end of half an hour or something, but I've never sweated like this from just stress and fear and anguish. You know what? In the early church, some people were so embarrassed about verses 43 to 44, they actually removed them from their Bibles. Have you got a church Bible there in front of you? Can you see a Bible that's got footnotes? If you look at the footnote at the bottom of the page there, you see the footnote at the bottom of the page. They got their scissors out and they literally chopped out verses 43 to 44. They were so embarrassed at the idea of Jesus being so terrified in the face of his own death. They couldn't bear the idea of Jesus needing an angel to help him. And we do need to ask ourselves the question. Why was he so frightened? What was he so scared of? I mean, many Christian martyrs since Jesus have been way more brave than Jesus facing death. They, they, they laughed in the face of death. Let me tell you just one story. It's the story of a guy called Polycarp. He died in 156 AD. Um, they told him, deny Jesus or we're going to burn you to death. And he said this, he said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They tied him up, burnt him to death, and he prayed out loud to God, God, I praise you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour. Some of Jesus' disciples were crucified themselves, and they faced death with courage, with bravery. And here is Jesus crying like a baby. acting in a way that 
was so embarrassing to some of the early Christians that they chopped it out of their Bibles. Why was Jesus so scared? Was he ultimately just a bit of a sook, a bit of a wimp? Friends, Jesus was no wimp. No way. The thing is this. He knew what was going to happen to him. He wasn't just going to die. And he wasn't just going to die in an excruciating and horrible way. He was dying as a substitute. Facing God's anger that you and I deserve for our sin. He was the Isaiah 53 servant being punished for the sins of the world as our substitute, bearing the judgment and wrath of God that our sins deserve. Friends, Jesus knew what it meant to die for your sin. He knew what it meant to die in your place, to face what you deserve. And the thought absolutely terrified him. If you ever want to know what hell is like, here's the place to start. And it doesn't look like hanging out with your buddies. I was at a funeral the other day and some young blokes were laughing at the ideas that, that I've been talking about, saying, oh, well, you know, at least in hell it'll be fun. I won't be stuck with all those boring Christians. You know, I'll be able to drink with my mates or whatever. It's not true. It's not true. You see it so clearly here. Jesus was about to bear hell for us. He knew what it would be like and the thought filled him with horror and anguish. And, you know, we ourselves, we can often be a bit glib as we talk about Jesus dying for our sins. It just sort of rolls off our tongues as if it was no big deal. I mean, I like to minimise my own sin and think it's not that bad. I like to think God's anger is no big deal. He wouldn't be that angry with me. So I, I hear Jesus died for my sins and I go, oh, yeah, whoopee, I'm walking on sunshine. But you see something like this and it makes you stop and think, doesn't it? The Garden of Gethsemane screams out that our sin is desperately serious. The Garden of Gethsemane screams out that the wrath of God is deadly serious. Because Jesus knew what we deserve and when he faced the prospect of taking our place, his sweat poured out like blood. Okay, let's try to remember. Here's an action for you. Jesus' death was agonising. That's the sweat. Okay. <laughs> what have we got so far? Jesus' death can save you. It was substitutionary and agonising. Should we say it together? Jesus' death can save you. It was substitutionary and it was agonising. Brings us to the V, which stands for voluntary. Voluntary. You, you can see that right through this passage. All through this passage, Jesus is in total control. He predicts that Peter will deny him. He tells the disciples, Isaiah 53 is about to be fulfilled in me. He says to God, not my will, but your will be done. He knows that Judas will betray him. He stops the disciples from defending him. He tells the authorities, I was there with you in broad daylight. I wasn't hiding. Complete control from start to finish. And he chooses to go to his own death. 
He voluntarily submits himself to the agonising horror of the cross. Why does he do it? I mean, he knows how terrible it will be. We just saw that in the garden. He knows it's going to be awful. Why does he do it? Friend, he did it because he loves you. No other reason. He did it for the joy set before him, the joy of being in heaven with you, his beloved. That's a precious thought, isn't it? It's an important thought. I mean, sometimes you hear people talk about, you know, God punishing Jesus as if it's some kind of divine child abuse. That's not what's going on. It's completely voluntary. And he does it because he loves you. So here's an action for you. Jesus' death was voluntary because he loves you. Do you remember what we've got so far? Jesus' death can save you. It was substitutionary, agonizing, and it was voluntary. Okay, last letter, U. U. The U stands for unique. All the way back in chapter 9, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, and all along he's been challenging people. He's been challenging people over and over again. In fact, it's been so often, I reckon you can probably say it with me. He said, if anyone would come after me, they must, do you remember what he said? Deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. Jesus has said that over and over and over again, hasn't he? Deny yourselves, pick up your cross, and follow me. But now we see the truth. No one can do it. No one can do it. Jesus is arrested alone. Jesus is betrayed by his disciple Judas. He's denied by his disciple Peter three times that he even knows him. Jesus is questioned and tortured alone. Jesus goes to that cross alone, numbered not with his disciples, numbered not with his friends, numbered not with people who denied themselves and picked up their cross and followed him, numbered well, numbered with the transgressors, the strangers. Friends, Jesus' death is entirely unique. No one else has died for your sins. No one else can give you a place in heaven. You can't get yourself to heaven. That was made clear in the garden, wasn't it? Jesus said, if there's any other way, God, let's go that way. If they can save themselves, let's leave them to it. There was no other way. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. Our sins are too great. Without Jesus, we will face the agonizing judgment of God ourselves. And no one else can help us. Buddha didn't die for our sins. Muhammad didn't die for our sins. Jesus is the only one. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So, friends, that's the you in save you. Jesus' death is unique. The only way to be saved. Here's an action for you. Jesus' death is unique. Unique. The only one. So, substitutionary, agonizing, voluntary, and unique. Tell you what, I had a university professor in the uh, first service, and she reckons what I should do is this get you to turn to another person, okay, and show the other person, okay, and then get the other person to show you. All right, you ready? I'll give you about 30 seconds to do it. Okay, you ready? Go.
Okay, well done. Let's come back together. Do you know what, friends? I know of no other saviour. I know of no other way into heaven. That's why I'm relying on Jesus. And that's why, as weird as it may seem to my cousin, I will rejoice and even sing about the awful, awful death of Jesus. Even sing about it as if it's a good thing. I am staking my life and my eternal destiny on the death of Jesus. I hope and pray that you will join me. Okay, one last time. Can you remember the four points? Together. Jesus' death can save you. It's substitutionary, agonising, voluntary and unique. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank and praise you that even though he knew the extraordinary cost of taking our place and bearing our sin and the judgment that we deserve, yet out of sheer love for us, he went to the cross and did die in our place. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge there's no other way we could ever be right with you. We thank you so much for Jesus. We pray that you help us to have a real sense of what he has done for us and live our lives in the light of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.